welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of his world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, in case you already forgot, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The word of the Lord. This is good news. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, and we're in a series called Yes, You, Discovering Our Identity and Purpose. Uh, in Christ Jesus. And the point of this series really is to look at what God says about us because the truest thing about who we are is what God says and speaks about us, what he thinks of us. And we have spent so much of our lives, I've spent so much of my life focusing on what I'm not. Last week we talked about this. We said who you aren't isn't interesting, but how many of us spend our lives looking at all the things that we aren't in life, all the ways that we don't measure up, all the things that we're not good at, not enough, not smart enough, not worthy enough, not uh, beautiful enough, or whatever it is that you put in that blank space, but we spend so much time and energy and resources trying to fix or, or stay away from those things that we be, we've seen ourselves as not. And what we see in the scriptures is some provocative truth that we are sons and daughters of the king. We are saints. We will see today that we are a work of art, that we are, next week, we are a temple. And the following week, which is part two of this sermon, we'll look at we are all artists. You are an artist. And so we see that God is, uh, uh, Paul is doing a lot of work in training the church to see who they are. Because uh, when you don't have a firm and established identity, you will do everything you can to earn or achieve or prove some type of identity. And that identity will be found in what you accomplish and who you know or in the relationships you have or in your past experiences. We see that Jesus' first temptation in the Gospel of Mark and the rest of the Gospels uh, is he's tempted to prove his identity. In the previous experience of Jesus' life, he is filled with the Holy Spirit and he's baptized and the heavens open up and God says to him, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. In the very next experience, Jesus is confronted with the tempter who tempts him to say, if you are the son of God, do this. If you are the son of God. So whenever we're tempted, the first temptation is to try to prove our identities outside of God. Are you with me? <clears throat> are you with me? <laughs> 
And so Paul, last week we talked about this, the, the fundamental to under, fundamentally, as Christians, we are becoming who we already are. Remember this? That Paul will say, um, uh, you are a saint, so now live in alignment with that reality. So that's who you are. Uh, so as a result of who you are, start living that way. It's not, hey, live this way so that you can become a saint. He says, you are this, so act like it. Become who you already are. Uh, I, I mentioned it last week that the similar identity for me was when I was 22 years old, I was pronounced husband. And now that became an identity and I had to learn how to become a husband. Now, did I have any idea what it meant to be a husband before that? Absolutely not. I learned how not to be a husband when I was living a single life. And when I became a husband, I wasn't doing all these chores and wasn't learning how to have intimate conversations and prepare meals and wash dishes the right way or all the things that we do in marriages. Those are just the list of the, the fun stuff that we have. Um, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't doing those things to become a husband. I was a husband and I had to learn how to be a husband. Are you with me? So we're talking about identity. And in this passage, I really want to focus on one word, actually, and it's the end in verse 10. But I want to talk about what Paul does here because it's fascinating. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is a declaration of what happens when you give your life to Jesus. This is, these few verses give us the explanation, and Paul uses all sorts of imagery. And Paul uses this, uh, this language. He says, when you were dead in your transgressions. And the word and the meaning behind that is that when you were trapped or when you were, uh, you were disabled or encapsulated by your sin. And we were encapsulated because of our sin in our hearts and in our lives and the sin in our world. And he says, we, because of that, we were enslaved to sin and we, it separated us from God. So we were dead. We, we were disabled from having a right relationship with God. That's what he's talking about in this passage. That we were, we were incapable of having a right relationship with the creator God. And, and he says, um, apart from Christ, you were dead. Apart from Christ, you, you, were, you were stuck, you were enslaved. But then he goes on, but he, he begins to describe what happened. And he says, but God, who is rich in mercy. You see, God acts towards humanity out of the person that he is. This is who he, he is full of mercy. So the only way he can act towards humanity is mercifully. He can, he can only act with love because that's the character that he demonstrates. When, uh, and, and if you question that, look at how he acts towards us in Christ. And that's what Paul's getting at. He says, uh, as an act of grace, we were made alive in Christ. While we were still dead in our transgressions, we were made alive in Christ from grace, grace uh, which is a gift from God through faith. So in other words, there's nothing you can possibly do. Grace, one definition is, is grace is God acting in our life to accomplish what we cannot do on our own. God acting in our life to accomplish what we cannot do on our own. So Paul's Gospel proclamation, the declaration of identity, is that who you are is a gift from God. That you were once dead, you were once stuck in all that sinful nature and who you once were, and now because of an act of kindness and mercy and grace, because of what Jesus did for us, all, it's all about him. Because of that grace, you can't do anything to earn it. You don't have karma for it. You don't have to go door to door for it. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to make yourself worthy. You don't have to do things over and over again. Salvation is a gift. 
gift. You can't do anything to impress him, to deserve it, to prove how worthy you are. You simply have to receive his grace. We are not saved by working ourselves to God. We are saved by an act of grace, a gift from God. Is this good news? I'm pretty stoked about that good news. I mean, if you really think about the implications for this, that all we have to do is receive God's grace as a gift. That's pretty profound. I have regular ongoing conversations with my friends who are Jehovah's Witnesses that come to my house almost every Saturday now. And they, it's, just, it's probably the most depressing religion there is. And if you study it, you'll understand why. They have to prove they are worth going to whatever's next, their idea of heaven. They have to literally go door to door as a, a, meet a quota to get there. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. You with me? And there's the largest gathering of Jehovah's Witnesses happens in Long Beach. Do you know that? This is a side note. I just learned this. The Jehovah's Witness convention that happens like four or five times a year in Long Beach at the convention center, it brings in more income from the city than the Gay Pride Parade and the Grand Prix. Didn't know that, did you? Yes. So I'm serious when I say this is really good news. This is liberating. It's grace. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. It's powerful, but it's just even more than that because look at what he goes on to say. And this is what's profound. We're talking about who we are in Jesus. Paul says, verse 10, and I want you to go there and circle this word or scroll, highlight, and save, and text it to yourself. (laughs) Post it on your Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter and remind yourself over and over again of this message. For we are God's handiwork. We are God's handiwork. Now, we're gonna spend some time and define this word because this is who you are. But the, uh, where this word comes from, it's a Greek word, handiwork, which I'll define in a minute, comes from a Hebrew word, which starts and is found in the beginning of our Bible in Genesis chapter one, verse one. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. I would love to hear the pages. Um, but if you don't, just go to Genesis one, verse one. It's, it's not getting too old for me. So if you don't laugh at it, I'm just going to still laugh. <laughs> <clears throat> Preaching for an audience of one. My wife, just kidding, not her. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Circle the word created. The Hebrew word is bara. Say bara. Bara. Now this is the word for created, but there's a, a, a kind of a bigger meaning behind it. It's a word in Hebrew that's only used to describe something that God created. There's another word to describe what humans create. And there's another word to describe a, a type of creation that's about fashioning or, 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 or delicate kind of sculpting that's in Hebrew. But this word, bara, is really defined as the explosive, majestic, raw, creative energy that speaks the world into existence. This is the creator that initiates the creator that, that empowers, it's explosive, that's carved. It's like a stone is being cut. That's the idea around this. And God is creating the cosmos. Barah, you with me? Okay, Genesis 1 verse 26 says this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals except for cats, um, and over all... (laughs) 
of course the dogs, but not the cats, and all the creatures that move along the ground. <laughs> Some of you hate, yeah, cats too. That was the result of fallen world. But anyways, um, <laughs> check verse 27. This is the point. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he bara them. Male and female, he created them. That word is used, bara is used three times. So it's used for the raw, majestic power of creation of cosmos, of stars and planets and, and systems. But then it's used to identify God imprinting his identity into humanity. You with me, bara. Creative power, this raw, initiating um, power of God that is, is, is all over creation. And then it's used for uh, God creating um, humans and imprinting his divine characteristic. Now, what you need to know about Barah and, and the image and likeness of God is later on in the Old Testament, the argument that will be used for why we shouldn't kill one another or murder for that matter, is that we hold in ourselves the image and likeness of God. We are image bearers. Therefore, um, you could say that if you wanted to harm an artist, destroy their art. Are you with me? That we are, we are products of, of this divine, intelligent creator who is lovingly creating and speaking the world into existence. Now, that's the, world, that's the word found in, in Genesis, bara, the Hebrew word. Now, the counterpart is found um, in Ephesians chapter two, but I wanna go to Romans chapter one because I want you to see another way that it's used by Paul um, because it's, it's really important that we get a grasp on this word, I think, bara, and then this other word that the Greek counterpart. And I, I love teaching, but we're just doing a Bible study. You with me? Just love preaching the word. It's powerful in itself. When we talk about identity, we're pulling out this word and it's a beautiful word for us. Verse 20 of chapter one, Paul writes this and he speaks about creation. For since the creation of the world, world God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Circle has been made so that people are without excuse. So in Romans, Paul's making this great argument that, hey, basically, um, all of us, uh, or since the creation of the world, God, uh, his, there's a sense that God, there's something out there. He explains that we're all born with an intuitive sense that there's some creator out there. You can't look at the planetary systems. You can't look at the cosmos, sunset, oceans, and beach, and tide. You can't look at a human eye. You can't look at a, a person intimately and not think that there is a creator out there. And the word he uses um, uh, understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse is the word poema. What has been made. The word is poema in Greek. And poema is the same word, go back to Ephesians chapter two, that is used to describe those that are in Christ Jesus. We are God's poema. And it's where we get the word poetic or poem. And it means to be created, but there's, there's something kind of more in, uh, uh, unique about this word in the Greek. Uh, bara in Hebrew is God's majestic, raw, creative power. Poema, it has this fine tuning, this sculpting, this artistic, creative expression of a delicate sculpture being fashioned into a masterpiece. So it's used to describe creation, that God made it, but then it's used to describe redeemed humanity that we were once dead, 
But now you are alive and being crafted, shaped, perfected, sculpted into a work of art in Jesus Christ. Is that good news? This passage teaches us that we are being cultivated into a work of art. Turn to the person next to you and say, you are a work of art. Now, do it again, but this time really mean it, especially if you're sitting next to your spouse. (laughs) If you're sitting next to like a person you're dating or engaged to, you definitely mean it. You are a work of art. You are a work of art. You are a masterpiece. You are designed, are being crafted, shaped, cultivated to be God's masterpiece. What this says is this tells us not only about who we are, but it says a lot about who God is. And that's what I want to point out real quick. You see, God's in the recreating business. He's in the restoration business. You see, he takes broken and flawed and sinful and pieces of chunk, chunks, sorry, that's not really anything. He takes chunks (laughs) of clay, (laughs) of dirt, and he turns them into a piece of art crafted in the image of Christ. You are being created by God's power for a purpose. God, when he begins to work on you, he, he, he sets out with a purpose. I was just talking to an artist who's, who's here. He's my friend, Johan, and he's, he's a portrait artist. And when he begins, I'm sure if, he, I don't know if this is true. I'm just speaking on his behalf. You can say yes or no, Johan. But when you begin to paint, you have an idea of what you are painting when you begin. Am I right? So you say yes or no. Yes, yes, he, he's right. He doesn't begin to do something throwing some colors on the, on, the, on the canvas. He has this image within him, this ideal that he wants to create and use his talents and skills and what's around to create it. God has the same purpose for us, that you are being shaped for a purpose. You're not an accident. You're not the sum of all your failures, the sum of all your mistakes. Of all the things that you weren't, once were, you are, are a work of art. You are a masterpiece being sculpted and fashioned by God himself. You see, we fundamentally change from our old self to a new self. And the scriptures teach us that when you trust Jesus, something in the very fabric of who you are, of your being, changes your identity. You're no longer sinful or fallen. or um, You are seen... Uh, when God looks at you, you are seen as Jesus. Now, some of you are here, and you just hear this going over your head. Now, for me, this is such good news. When I say you are a work of art, I have to say that to myself over and over again because I spent a lifetime hating myself. I spent a lifetime, literally to the point when I was in high school, I, I, I would harm myself starve myself and wanted to kill myself. I believed that my life was not worth living because I wasn't worthy at all. I wasn't lovable and that the life I should live should end because that's the only way I can be healed. I believe that I found myself, my identity, and what people thought of me and what I can prove to other people. I talked about this last week. So when God says in me, you are a work of art, I say, yeah, right. That's not true. That can't be true. I'm angry, I'm flawed, I'm broken, I'm a sinner, I have a, 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 I have a, a temper, I'm full of lust and rage and pride and arrogance. There's no way that you could call me that. And he says over and over again, you're my masterpiece. 
That is gone. I don't see it. Why do you see it? But all the, all the stuff that I've done to myself, God, all the pain that I caused to other people, all the pain that's been caused to me, that's all I could see when I look at the mirror. I still see that fat kid that wants to die. He says, no, I love you. You're a work of art. What do you hear? Who are you? You're a work of art. You're a work of art. God fine-tunes you and sculpts you into something that's beautiful and designed for good works, which we'll talk about in two weeks, that we're all artists, that we are both art and artists. He sculpts us with precision to empower us to partner with him in the renewal of all things. This is who you are. So that's good news, amen? Amen. Amen. So I want you to think about this letter from a historical context. So put on your thinking caps, brothers and sisters. Here we go. I want you to think about the implication of living 2,000 years ago in Ephesus and receiving this letter from a guy named Paul, who at one point was part of your city, lived there for a few years, talked about the resurrected Jesus and baptized some people like, and, and planted churches and planted lots of churches. I want you to think about um, putting on the mindset of, of being an Ephesian that was receiving these words 2,000 years ago. So what you need to know then, so, so we can get into the same place in our minds, is, is Ephesus 2,000 years ago. So Ephesus was the center of Artemis worship. And Artemis was the combination of Kibbeh, the uh, Mesopotamian god of, of fertility and, product, uh, and, and sexuality, and, uh, and, and that was the, it was brought together with the God, the Greek God Diana, the God of small hunt and little, or, uh, small animals and the hunt. I just thought that's a paradox. How can you be the God of the hunt and small animals? Think about it for a second. Doesn't make sense? Okay, but when their powers combined, they became Captain Artemis is basically what happened. Um, but they were worshiped. <laughs> that was good. That was clever. Come on. A little more. Yeah, okay. Earth, wind, fire, whatever it is. Um, Yeah, water, I don't know, the elements. I went to aquarium yesterday. Apparently it was like Earth Day weekend there and it was like line to line with people. I like walked in with Ezra. I'm like, nope, going back out. And we just left. (laughs) Uh, I don't want to see jellyfish like this. Anyway, so uh, Earth, wind, fire, Artemis. So it was a worship of Artemis and Artemis was a famous God. We've talked about her before. Um, She was worshiped all over the world. Um, She, uh, this was the epicenter for Artemis worship. I mean, Artemis was, was a sexual God. You would worship her through sexual activity. It was really crazy. They had temple prostitutes. It was, it was this crazy city that was known for its beauty. It was known for all the idols it made. They crafted and sculpted and painted all these images of gods all throughout the city. Um, <coughs> people would come. Ephesus was a city of about 250,000 people, half the size of Long Beach. It was a port city like Long Beach, so trade was happening there. It was a banking capital for Asia Minor. Um, But people would come once a year for the annual festival of worshiping Artemis, and it would flood with a million people. 
So a million people would come in, they'd worship these gods, and there was a God for everything, and on every corner you walked, you saw a statue, you saw a mosaic, you saw all sorts of artifacts. Archaeologists have discovered in homes of the Ephesians, various people would have murals and, and paintings on their households, or in their household, as a way to honor the gods. Um, they made gods out of artwork. So they, they would make gods in their image and present them with art, and that's how they worshiped them. You would make You'd worship God through creating art. You with me? And they worshiped these perfect beings. And so what you need to know about Greek culture and mindset is they also worship perfection. They worship the human body being perfect. So think about this in Ephesus. So you would walk around, there were these half-naked gods and these Greek citizens or these mythological characters that would be perfect male figures and perfect female figures. And, and they were all over the place. And so in Ephesus, you had this particular mindset where it was about worshiping these images that were made of the gods. It was about beauty. It was about the perfect body. Um, they believed that if you had any type of um, physical deformity, if you had a limp, if you had any type of physical condition that wasn't perfect, it was because you were cursed by the gods. And, and even going further than that, uh, Ephesus worshiped the perfect body to the point where if you were having a child, you prayed to the gods that you had a perfect baby boy. We have historical documents of a letter that a guy wrote his wife when he was away in Alexandria um, in Egypt. And he writes this letter about all the affairs of their household and he lived in Ephesus. And so he writes his wife and look at the end of the letter. His wife is pregnant. He says, good luck to you. When you have a child, if it is a boy, let it live. That's cool. If it's a girl, throw it out. This was the mindset of 2,000 years ago in Ephesus. The dominant uh, the, the dominant industry, apart from making idols, was slave trade. There was an entire generation that was raised up as slaves because men and women would discard their babies into the wilderness, into various places in, around the city of Ephesus, and they would leave them to die or they would be picked up by slave owners and raised as slaves and then sold into slavery. These slaves were most likely in the church in Ephesus. These, um, these slave owners were also most likely in the church in Ephesus. These people that were around this culture, this society of beauty and perfection had been, had been groomed by a culture that says you are what you look like, how much money you have, how blessed you are by the gods, by uh, who you know and whose son or daughter you are because there was a generation that was discarded by their parents. And so when Paul says, you are an adopted son and daughter of God, what would that say to a slave who has been discarded because of physical deformity? You, I know it's hard for us to relate to a culture that's all about wealth and status and image and perfect body, but what they hear is to a generation that have been, that have been heard, that has heard from society that you are what you look like. He's saying in Ephesus, check this out, in Ephesus, people make gods in their image. Paul writes, our God makes people in his image. How revolutionary is this? 2,000 years ago. In Ephesus, people fashioned statues of gods into art. Our God fashions people into works of art. You are a work of art. To the person with a physical deformity hearing this for the first time, what did they hear? 
for the, the woman who's been told by, by culture that they're half a, a human because they're a woman. That's literally what Aristotle and Socrates believed. That was the Greek mindset. What were they receiving in these statements of identity? You are a work of art. You are a work of art. God makes art out of people. You thought that temples and statues and murals and sculptures of gods were images of true beauty. Paul says, no, you're better than that. The art God is doing uh, with you far surpasses anything humans can create. He takes what is ugly and fallen and dead and broken and he crafts it into beauty and perfection designed for good works. Is this good news? 2,000 years ago, can we relate to a letter written 2,000 years ago? Yeah. And maybe you're like me and you're sitting here and you're saying to yourself, yeah, this is hard to believe about me. This is really hard. You're struggling to believe that this is true. Some of you are here and you actually, deep inside, if you were to just be fully honest with yourself, you would say, well, if I lost 10 pounds, then I'll be a work of art. If I just made a few thousand dollars more so that I could retire and, and have that accomplishment, then I'll be what I'm worth. If I could just finish my degree and get my education, if I could just find my husband or a spouse, or if I could just look like them, or if I could just get rid of this lust, if I could just get rid of this addiction, then maybe I'd be worth something. Some of you are here and you hear that God is calling you a work of art and all you could think about is that you are damaged goods. There's no way I could be a work of art when I had an abortion. How can it be a work of art when I need help getting out of bed from someone because I physically can't do it? How can it be a work of art when I've been divorced three times? How can it be a work of art because I can't have kids? How can it be a work of art because I've hated myself so much that I have scars on my arms? How can you call me a work of art? And that's what he does. He takes all of those excuses, the ifs and then, and he says, no, your truest thing about you is that you are designed for perfection. You are a masterpiece. That's not true of you anymore. You have to surrender the old and put on the new. You have to take off the old, the lies that you believe, and receive what is truest about you. Those things no longer get to define who you are. Jesus gets to define who you are. And what he says about you is that you are his beloved. You are a saint. You are holy. You are worthy. You receive an inheritance and you are a masterpiece, a work of art. Anyone here need to hear that this morning? Anyone here need to hear over and over and over and over and over again? Because if you're here and you're tired of all the addictions, if you're here and you're tired of finding your identity in those relationships that have left you broken and hurting and failed and exposed and betrayed, if you're here and you have uncontrollable rage, if you have a loveless marriage, if you're tired of hiding your real pain and, and your real imperfections, well, I have good news for you. You're in good company because we all are tired of those things. And if you think church is about putting those things aside and, uh, and putting on a face, well, no, that's not it. 
It's not about putting on a face. It's about putting on who you really are. And we get to turn to one another and say, you are a saint. You are a work of art. And that's the good news. The good news is that God takes what is broken and selfish and petty and he begins to transform it. Not, it's, not, it's not like I can say, oh, my, I have a perfect marriage and I don't struggle with identity issues. It's that I can simply call out the truth that says, in the middle of my brokenness, in the middle of my sin, in the middle of all the pain that I'm experiencing, God is fashioning in me a work of art. That's what is true. And so if you're here and you're tired of putting on the show, good, let's take off the mask. Amen? And let's put on what is truest about us, poema, 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 handiwork, poema, God doing what only God can do. Poema is not what you can do. Poema is what God does in you. You cannot save your marriage. You can't make your life healthier. Therapy is not gonna save you. It's amazing. Do therapy. Get the work done. We need a savior who saves and it's poema who comes and transforms us into masterpiece. God calls us poema. This is grace that God takes sinners and screw-ups and failures and calls them a work of art. Amen. We should just sit for a second, huh? Let that soak in a little bit and then maybe pray. You want to do that? I think we should do that. So let, why don't you just close your eyes? Stay where you are. Don't hustle and bustle. Just listen to this for a second. The creator of the universe who spoke the world into existence calls you his masterpiece. And even as I say that, I think of all the junk that I do, all the wrongs, all the sin, all the, all the, there's no better word than crap in my life. And he takes it. And he says, I'm working in you. Perfection, beauty, sculpture, poetic artwork. You are his piece of art. You are his masterpiece, his work of art. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.